There are two men who are meeting in a dark room. Outside, a thunderstorm is raging. They're in an old house that's being shaken to its foundations. There are flashes of lightning occurring all around, but the two men don't really see them because heavy curtains are drawn across the windows. They're drawn because this is a secret meeting. This is the first time that these two men have ever met, and yet they've been searching for each other all of their lives. And now their destinies have crossed. One of them is a tall black man who is dressed all in black. And he carries the aura of a spiritual master. The younger man, who is trying to conceal the fact that he is frightened and uncertain, might become his disciple. It all depends on a decision. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice, tumbling down the rabbit hole. Hmm? You could say that. I can see it in your eyes. You have the look of a man who accepts what he sees because he is expecting to wake up. Ironically, this is not far from the truth. Do you believe in fate, Neil? No. Why not? Because I don't like the idea that I'm not in control of my life. I know exactly what you mean. Let me tell you why you're here. You're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain, but you feel it. You felt it your entire life, that there's something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there, like a splinter in your mind, driving you mad. It is this feeling that has brought you to me. Do you know what I'm talking about? The Matrix. Do you want to know what it is? The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. Even now, in this very room. You can see it when you look out your window or when you turn on your television. You can feel it when you go to work, when you go to church, when you pay your taxes. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. What truth? That you are a slave, Neo. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage, born into a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch. A prison for your mind. Unfortunately, no one can be told what the Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill, the story ends, 
You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. See, this world of the Matrix is a very grim place. In fact, when they made the movie, <clears throat> they supposedly removed all of the color blue from the exterior shots in order to convey the grimness that this world actually um, port uh, portrayed. It's a world that's a ravaged wasteland where most of humanity has been captured by a race of machines that live off the human's body heat and electrochemical energy and who imprison their minds with an artificial reality known as the matrix. Now most of the people in this world don't really live. I think exist is perhaps a better word. They sleep, they work, they eat, they have a couple of cocktails to break up the boredom. Then they get up and they do it all over again. Can anyone here relate to that? The story that's told in the Matrix is a parable. It's a metaphor. And though it is a dark story, it is far closer to reality and to your life than you probably realize. It's a story that falls into the category of myth. Now, there are several ways that we can interpret this word myth. It can be used in a technical way when we, as, such as when we talk about Greek mythology. Or it can be used more broadly and more inclusively to mean a story that brings you a glimpse of the eternal or any story that awakens your heart to the deep truths of life. This use of the word myth can apply to the stories that Jesus told. For example, his story about the sower and the seeds is a mythic story because it spoke to the people who heard it directly from Jesus and it still speaks to us today. There was no time, there were no names, there was nothing attached to it. It's just a story that speaks to an eternal truth of God. Mythic stories help us to see clearly. In fact, I think they're what help us to see with the eyes of our heart. And so it's with the eyes of our heart that I want us to look at this mythic story called the Matrix so that we might understand some of the eternal truths that it contains. And the first eternal truth that it shows us is that we do not see the world clearly. Morpheus said, I know exactly what you mean. Let me tell you why you're here. You're here because you know something. What you know, you can't explain. You feel it, you felt it your entire life. There's something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is but it's there like a splinter in your mind driving you mad. 
Let me ask you, what exactly are you perfectly clear about these days? How about your life? Why have things gone the way they have? And where was God in all that? And do you know what you ought to do next with a deep, settled confidence that it's all going to work out? Yeah, neither do I. Oh, I, I would love to wake up each morning and, and know exactly who I am and, and where God is taking me. Zeroed in on all my relationships, undaunted in my calling. But unfortunately for most of us, life seems more like driving along with a dirty windshield and then turning into the sun. We can sort of make out the shapes that are ahead and we think the light is green. Let's start with why life is so hard. You try to lose a little weight, but it never seems to happen. You think of making a shift in your career, maybe even serving God, but you never actually get to it. Perhaps a few do make the jump, but it rarely pans out the way you thought. Maybe you try to recover something in your marriage and your spouse looks at you with a glance that says, nice try, or isn't it a little late for that? And the thing actually blows up into an argument in front of the kids. Sure, we have our faith, but even there, maybe especially there, it all seems to fall short of the promise. There's talk of freedom and abundant life, of peace like a river and joy unspeakable. But we see precious little of it, to be honest. When you stand them side by side, <clears throat> the description of the Christian life practically shouted at in the New Testament when compared with the actual life of most Christians it's embarrassing. I mean, Paul sounds like a madman. And we all look a little foolish. Why is it that nearly every good thing, from taking the annual family vacation to planning a wedding to cultivating a relationship, takes so much work? Has God abandoned us? Did we not pray enough? Is this something that we just accept as part of life and we suck it up and even though it breaks our hearts? After a while, <clears throat> the accumulation of event after event that we do not like and do not understand erodes our confidence that we are really part of something that is grand and good. And it reduces us to a survivalist mindset. We've been told that we matter to God. And part of us partly believes it. But life has a way of chipping away at that conviction, undermining our settled belief that he means well. 
So we come to two conclusions, one of two, maybe both. We conclude that either we're blowing it or God is holding out on us or some combination of both, which is where most people end up. Think about it. Isn't this where you land? With all the things that haven't gone the way you'd hoped and wanted? Isn't some version of I'm blowing it in that it's your fault, you could have done better, you could have been braver, you could have prayed more or something? Or God is holding out on me in that you know he could come through, but he hasn't come through. And what are we to make of that? Day after day, life hammers us until we lose sight of what God intends toward us. And we haven't the foggiest idea why things that are happening to us are happening to us. And it's all because we don't see the world clearly. Now on the positive side of things, even though this world or the matrix causes us not to see clearly, the reality is that the glory of God is you fully alive. At one point in the movie, Neo asks Morpheus, why do my eyes hurt? Morpheus responds by saying, you've never used them before. The glory of God is man fully alive is a quote that is attributed to Irenaeus. Now, Irenaeus was an early church father And his writings were formative in the early development of Christian theology. And for many people, their reaction upon hearing this quote is, you're kidding me. Really? So he's saying that the purpose of God, the very thing that God has staked his relationship on, or his reputation on, is my coming fully alive. Well, that's a different take on things. We've been told any number of times that God does care. And there are some pretty glowing promises given to us in Scripture along those lines. But on the other hand, we have the days of our lives. And they have a way of casting a rather long shadow over our hearts when it comes to God's intentions toward us in particular. But if we turn to the New Testament to have another look, We can read for ourselves what Jesus says he offers. In John 10.10, he says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That's pretty different from saying, I came here to forgive you, period. Now, forgiveness is awesome. But Jesus says he came here to give us life. Okay, well, what else did he say? Well, he said, I am the bread of life. He said, whoever believes in me, as as the scriptures has said, 
Streams of living water will flow from within him. Now, the more you look, the more this whole theme of life just practically jumps off the pages. In Proverbs, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the, what, wellspring of life. The Psalms say, you have made known to me the path of life. In the prologue to John's gospel, John writes, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. Jesus says, come to me and have life. And then in Acts, tell the people the full message of this new life. But I think what's happened in many cases is that this offer has been interpreted by very well-meaning people to say, well, yes, of course. Of course God intends life for you, but that's eternal life. Meaning that because of the death of Jesus, you can go to heaven when you die. There's a problem with that theology, though. That isn't what Scripture says. Jesus doesn't locate his offer to us only in some distant future after we've slogged through our days here on earth. He talks about a life that is available to us now. I tell you the truth, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come. Paul evidently believed this as well. Because in 1 Timothy he says, Godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. And then in Romans he says, Just as... Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father. Now we also may live new lives. The glory of God is man fully alive. Your coming alive is what God is committed to. That's the offer of Christianity. Wouldn't it make a difference if you really believed that your lives and God's glory were bound together? Isn't that what the scriptures say? I think things would start looking up if we really believed that. It would feel pretty promising. Sort of like going to school on the first day of school and making friends with the biggest kid in the class. Morpheus offers Neo a chance to see and experience life as it should be. God's offer is the same. The offer is life. Make no mistake about it. So then where is that life? Why 
Is it so rare? Well, <clears throat> it's rare because too often we forget that we are engaged in a war. Morpheus says to Neo, the matrix is everywhere. It is all around us, even now in this very room. You can see it when you look out your window or when you turn on your television. You can feel it when you go to work, when you go to church, when you pay your taxes. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. Neo asks, what truth? Morpheus then says that you are a slave, Neo. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage, into a prison that you cannot taste or smell or touch, a prison for your mind. We've talked about the second part of John 10.10. However, the first part says the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. It's only after Jesus makes that point clear that he then says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. God intends life for you. But right now that life is oppressed and opposed. In other words, yes, the offer is life. But you're going to have to fight for it because there's an enemy in your life who has a different agenda. Now, I don't like that fact any more than you do. <clears throat> but the sooner that we come to terms with it, the better hope we have of making things into this life that we really and truly want to have. This is an area in which I've had a little bit of a change of heart. My old default position was always, well, yes, we have an enemy. But let's not give him any more credit than we have to. Don't go looking for Satan under every rock. See, I knew we were in a war. I just didn't take it as seriously as I should have. Now I believe <clears throat> that I'm seeing things a little more clearly. And the fact is, the world in which we live is a combat zone. A violent clash of kingdoms, a bitter struggle unto death. Where did we think all of this opposition was coming from? Even a quick read of the Old Testament should be enough to convince you that war is a central theme of God's activity. There's the Exodus where God goes to war to set his captive people free. A whole series of plagues and finally the death of every firstborn child. Then these fleeing slaves are pinned down against the Red Sea when Egypt makes a final charge, hurtling down upon them in chariots. God drowns those soldiers in the sea every last one of them. Standing in shock and joy on the opposite shore, the Hebrews proclaim the Lord is a warrior. It's Exodus 
Then it's war to get into the promised land. Moses and company have to do battle against the Amalekites. And again, God comes through and Moses shouts, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. That's in Exodus 17, chapter, or verse 16. Then it's war to get into the promised land. Joshua and the battle of Jericho and all that. And after the Jews gain the promised land, it's war after war to keep it. Israel battles the Canaanites, the Philistines, the Midianites, the Egyptians again, the Babylonians, and on and on it goes. Deborah goes to war. Gideon goes to war. King David goes to war. Elijah wars against the prophets of Baal. Jehoshaphat battles the Edomites. Are you getting the picture? Now, some people think that this whole theme of war ends in the Old Testament. But the birth of Christ was an act of war, an invasion. The enemy knew it and tried to kill him. It's in Matthew 2.13. The whole life of Christ is marked by battle and confrontation. He kicks out demons with a stern command. He rebukes a fever, and it leaves Peter's mother-in-law. He rebukes a storm, and it subsides. He confronts the Pharisees time and time again to set God's people free from legalism. In a loud voice, he wakes Lazarus from the dead. He descends to hell, wrestles the key of hell and death from Satan, and leads a train of captives free. And then when he returns, Jesus will come mounted on a steed of war with his robe dipped in blood, armed for battle. War is not just one among many themes in the Bible. It's the backdrop for the whole story. The context for anything else, for everything else. God's at war. And what's he fighting for? Well, he's fighting for our freedom and our restoration. The glory of God is man fully alive. In the meantime, Paul says to arm yourselves. In the first place of equipment, the first piece of equipment that he urges us to don is the belt of truth. We arm ourselves by getting a good, solid grip on our situation by getting some sort of clarity on the fact that there is a battle going on and we're in the middle of it. In his book, Mere Christianity, in a chapter that he titled, The Invasion, C.S. Lewis tried to clarify our situation. He wrote, one of the things that surprised me when I first read the New Testament seriously was that it talked so much about a dark power in the universe a mighty evil spirit who was held to be the power behind death and disease and sin. The difference is that Christianity thinks this dark power was created by God and was good when he was created and went wrong. Christianity agrees this universe is at war. And finally, got to fight for your life. 
Now, as they're getting prepared for a battle against the agents of the Matrix, one of the rebels turns to Neo and he says, so what do you need besides a miracle? To which Neo replies, guns, lots of guns. <coughs> John Eldridge says that until we come to terms with war as the context of our days, we will not understand life. We will misinterpret 90% of what is happening around us and to us. It will be very hard to believe that God's intentions towards us are life is life abundant. It will be even harder not to feel that somehow we are just blowing it. See, in the midst of everything that's happening to us and going on around us, it's pretty tempting to say, God, would you just please make them stop shooting at me? Well, that day is coming when the lion shall lay down with the lamb and we will see swords beaten into plowshares. But we're not there yet. And for now, it's a bloody battle. You won't understand your life you won't see clearly what has happened to you or how to live forward from here unless you see it for what it is, an all-out war against your heart. So what do we need to fight this battle? Obviously, lots of guns are not going to do much good. Well, I think the first thing that we need is what we've talked about today, and that's awareness. Awareness that what we see is not the whole story. Awareness that God's desire is for us to be fully alive, not just existing. Awareness that we are all fighting battles in an all-out war that's being waged for our hearts. An awareness that if we want to live more fully, then we have to fight. So awareness is the first weapon. Awareness is what Morpheus was providing to Neo, but only up to a point. Then it was time to choose a course of action, red or blue. You have a choice too. You can choose to ignore the battle and believe whatever you want to believe about why your life is lacking the abundance promised by Scripture. I would call that the blue pill option. Or you can, you can choose to engage in this battle and go after the abundance that is rightfully yours. That would be the red pill option. So you can now perhaps understand a little better why it just seemed like everything but the kitchen sink was being thrown at us this morning to try and keep this message from getting out. This isn't new. 
thousands of years old. It's been right there all along. Problem is, either we don't see it, or we see it, and we just kind of go right past it. Because we don't want to believe that it's really as bad as it is shared in Scripture. That it truly is a battle, and that there's a fight that we've got to be a part of. And the cool thing is, as I was thinking and, and praying about this and trying to decide, okay, well, do I do this message today? Should I do something else? I mean, I, it was a lot of uncertainty when I, you know, got that turn on my phone, and that's what was waiting for me at 5.30 this morning. But the more I thought about it, and I know there are several of you, but the one person in this church that I can tell you did not need to hear this message was Joyce Henderson. She knows it's a battle. <clears throat> it's a battle she's been fighting on a lot of different fronts for a lot of years. And I think if she were able to be here, all she would say is, Amen, brother, preach it. And so in the weeks to come, we're going to talk a little bit more about this thing called the heart and what that really is and, and why the heart is mentioned so many times in Scripture. Don't quote me on this because I didn't check. But I, I think the heart is mentioned something like 800 times in the, the entirety of Scripture. That's not insignificant. That is, in fact, the number. It's, it's a lot. That's all I can say for sure. So we're going to talk about it, what, what it is and why it's important and what it has to do with this whole idea of abundant life. And how we can, what we can then do to help ensure that we can walk in that, like I know Joyce does. Never met, I've never been around her a time when, even this morning, I didn't want to wake her because I had no idea what, if she'd been getting any sleep or not. So I just sent her a text message response. And I told her how sorry I was. And it's only, uh, I need to quote her. She says, I know God has this, but our hearts are heavy. Grace. She knows it's a battle. So let's pray. Father God, first of all, we, we simply want to lift Joyce and Henry and that family up before you now. 
I pray that you would hold them close. That even in this time of going through something so very, very horrifying and brutal, that this would not damage their hearts. That they would understand that it's simply another another fight, another part of the battle. So bless them, Lord. Be their comfort in this time. Be with them as they go through the painful process of making arrangements. And be with them even after And especially after all of the things that have to occur with the death of someone have passed. And they are once again at that point of simply being around one another. That's when it gets hard, Father. And so that's when we pray that you will be especially with them and upon them. And who better, Lord God, than you? For you lost your one and only son. And so, Father, we come now before you in this time of remembrance. Well, we're going to, uh, I'm going to do a quick dismissal prayer. And uh, before I do that, though, if I could have people who've been released to pray to come forward. And uh, it probably is better if you kind of go more towards the corner so you're not in front of these speakers, which can make it difficult to hear. Uh, but if you have a, uh, something that you need prayer for, um, if you want to go to one of these people and you want to join with them in prayer, for Joyce and her family, then I, please do that. If you have uh, some other need that you uh, have, then we really want you to take advantage of this, of the opportunity to get prayer. So, Father, I thank you now. I pray that this week would be a, a very good week for all those here. Father, help us to take Andre's words to heart as he spoke them earlier about the need for us to take this message outside of these four walls, out into that world where a form of the matrix has blinded the eyes of so many. Let us be truth. And let us share truth. We give you thanks and praise, Father, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.